You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. After these things, God tested Abraham. That's how this story, this oh-so-difficult story, begins. As we move through these stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel this summer, we will often bump up against things that are odd and unsettling. But this one pushes us perhaps the hardest of all. We do well to recall Karl Barth's insistence that the Bible holds what he calls a strange new world, that we should not expect the biblical landscape to conform narrowly to ours. But with a story like this, is that enough? God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Abraham, sacrifice your beloved son Isaac, the child of unlikely promise born to you and Sarah in your old age, the one through whom your heirs were to be born. Kill him as a burnt offering to me. Why, we ask, would God possibly ask this of anyone? Is this true to the character of God? Or for those who are indifferent or even hostile to faith, the reaction maybe is something more like, well, if that's the God in whom you believe, I want nothing to do with it. There is a long and venerable tradition of reading this story as being a a type or a foreshadowing of the gospel story of the cross, where God the Father is prepared to offer God the Son even unto death, something that Abraham ultimately did not have to do, which isn't an altogether wrong way of reading the story, but the story itself still sits there. Some people are tempted to rather neatly reply, yes, but that's the God of the Old Testament. We're a New Testament gospel people. And surely we are a gospel people, but there is only one God. That God is gradually revealed and wrestled with for a couple of thousand years before the birth of Jesus. These Hebrew scriptures are the only scriptures that Jesus knew. Jesus knew this story, in fact. So let's explore first some of the ways in which Judaism has thought about this story. Christian tradition has generally called the story the testing of Abraham. The Jewish tradition has called it the ekedah, or the binding of Isaac. That alone, I think, is significant, 
suggests that the camera lens should be tightly focused on that moment when Abraham binds his son Isaac and places him on top of that wood. The knife is raised, quote, and the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham, stop. You've proved that you fear, that you revere, that you obey God. That's all that matters. The Jewish biblical scholar and translator Robert Alter suggests that this is the moment that deeply connects this story to one from the previous chapter in which the slave woman Hagar is forced to leave the camp of Abraham and Sarah, taking her young son Ishmael with her, the son she'd born together with Abraham. The phrase, and the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens is, Alter reflects, the phrase is nearly identical with the calling out to Hagar in that previous chapter. In fact, a whole configuration of parallels between the two stories is invoked. Each of Abraham's sons is threatened with death in the wilderness, one in the presence of his mother, the other in the presence of and by the hand of his father. In each case, the angel intervenes at the critical moment, referring to the son fondly as Na'ar, lad. At the center of the story, Abraham's hand holds the knife. Hagar is enjoined to hold her hand on the lad. In the end, each of those sons is promised to become the progenitor of a great people, the threat to Abraham's continuity having been averted. This might suggest that part of what's happening in the binding of Isaac is almost something of a response to the coldness with which Abraham had allowed Hagar and Ishmael to be cast out. That the one story completes and then complements the other. The Jewish scholar and translator Everett Fox, on the other hand, sees this story as being something of a culminating point in the life of Abraham, bringing full circle what had begun when Abraham and Sarah are first introduced at the beginning of Genesis 12, with this command from God to go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Everett Fox comments, there Abraham had been asked to give up the past, his father. Here, the future, his son. Between the two events lies Abraham's active life as a man of God, ancestor and intercessor. After this event, God will never speak with Abraham again. Did you hear that? After this, God will never speak with Abraham again. And it's actually true. 
For while Abraham will not die for another two and a half chapters in Genesis, God never again speaks with him. Or is that Abraham never again speaks with God? Again, in the rabbinical tradition, there is a strand that says Abraham can never quite bear to again speak with God, given this experience of the binding of Isaac. There's another strand in that tradition that says Sarah, Sarah, who dies quite soon after this story, she dies of grief over the fact that Abraham was prepared to even consider killing Isaac. Now, the rabbis in this interpretive tradition are not saying that it was a matter of fact that Abraham was too hurt to again speak with God, or a matter of fact that Sarah died of a broken heart. Rather, it's an interpretive tradition that loves the stories so much that it will return to them again and again and again and read them with great imagination. Imagine what it would have been like to have been Sarah. Imagine what it would have felt like to be Abraham that day on that mountain. Imagine the emotions of these very human characters. Identify with them. Empathize with them. Enter the biblical stories with them. And what do you now know about yourself and your understanding of your God? It's a rich way of reading Scripture. And here's something further from Everett Fox that speaks to the knowledge of what it means to be human in this world created by God. The story, Fox writes... The story is also the paradigmatic narrative of the entire book. The patriarch passes the test, and we know that the fulfillment of the divine promise is assured. Yet, there is an ominous note. Love, which occurs here by name for the first time, leads almost to heartbreak. I'll read that again. Yet there is an ominous note. Love, which occurs here by name for the first time, leads almost to heartbreak. And so it will be for the rest of Genesis. Love leads almost to heartbreak. Genesis, and through all of the scriptures, well into the New Testament, Witness Mary's heartbreak over Jesus' death. Or Jesus' own heartbreak over pouring out his love into the people who don't understand, who will turn on him. And it's true for us. Anytime any one of us chooses to love, we are risking heartbreak. It's just true. The question remains, though, why would God lay such a heavy burden across the shoulders of Abraham? Take your beloved son and kill him. Kill him as an offering to me. Why? 
Well, in the religious world in which these stories are set, the sacrifice of children to the gods was not unknown. We think of it as an appalling thing, and so we should. Abraham might have seen it as a horrific thing, but he was really just getting to know God. These are ancient stories from near the beginning of God's revelation, God's gradual unveiling. And God was meeting these most ancient forebears of ours in the language and cultural forms that they understood. They understood animal sacrifice. And they even knew of child sacrifice in other contexts. The deepest test for Abraham was to even consider doing that to Isaac. The consolation is that he doesn't have to go through with it. The ram is provided, the story says. And, quote, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. There's a long tradition that suggests that this story marks the definitive rejection of child sacrifice for what was to become the people of Israel. There may be some real truth in that. In both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, such sacrifice of children is specifically prohibited. It profanes the name of your God, it says in Leviticus. Of course, animal sacrifice continues, continues right into the time of Jesus. Yet hundreds of years before Jesus, prophets such as Isaiah had recognized that even animal sacrifice is not something that God wants or in any way needs, but rather it's something that God has allowed or provided as the thing that people can actually do as their symbolic way of expressing their fidelity, something that made sense to them in their cultural world of that day, that part of the world. In the end, though, those prophets teach it isn't blood sacrifice that God wants. It's our faithfulness, our love, our integrity, our servanthood one to another. Or as Micah famously wrote, what God requires is that we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Finally, though, a, a, a pressing question does remain. If God so tested Abraham, does God test us? I mean... We like Abraham's conclusion that God provides. And we want to lean hard into that promise. But testing, even of the agonizing sort faced by Abraham, writing a millennium after the ancient story of Abraham and Isaac began to be set down in written form, St. Paul takes up the question of testing in his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, it's important to note that Paul is standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before him. He's building on centuries and centuries of God's ongoing revelation 
to the prophets and to the psalmists and to the others in the tradition, he's standing firmly within God's defining revelation in Jesus Christ. Paul, in other words, is on a foundation. And Paul writes to that struggling, contentious, troubled little church community in Corinth. He writes, God is faithful, and God will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, God will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. It would seem that in Paul's view, God does test, or at least allows us to be tested, And at the very same time, God provides. That's Abraham's key insight again. God provides what we most need to actually grow through whatever it is we face. And you do know that God's provision often comes through one another, through support and kindness and servanthood of the sort that Christian discipleship insists we offer one to another. We bear one another's burdens, and that's a big part of God's provision. I know something of that, of being supported in that way, of being provided for, of having my burdens shared with other people, of being carried through difficult trial and testing and growing. Not that that makes this story altogether easy or less troubling, but with those rabbinical voices echoing in the background and with Paul sitting beside me, I am glad for the privilege to wrestle in these stories that come up time and again. I am glad for the privilege to wrestle in them because in the end, I know that I can trust the character of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. This sermon was preached on June 28, 2020, dealing with the story of the testing of Abraham or the binding of Isaac. A companion podcast will be released on Wednesday, July 1st. It's from our archives, from an idea exchange session called A Priest and a Rabbi Walk Into a Story, and that hour-long podcast from a decade back, My friend, Rabbi Neil Rose, and myself, Jamie Howison, will engage in some conversation and interpretation of this classic story, this difficult story, from the book of Genesis. I invite you to return and give that one a listen on Wednesday. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.